This podcast is brought to you by Bethany Trinity Presbyterian Church. Thanks for listening. Well, how are you going? I hope you're going okay. It's uh, pretty full on, isn't it? And uh hope you're not getting tired uh, just yet. But uh, let me pray and ask God to help us focus once again. Heavenly Father, again, we thank you for the chance to be here, for the chance to dig deeply into Scripture. I pray that you'll uh, help us to um, put our tiredness aside, the distractions aside, and once again to focus on this uh, passage of your word. And we pray that you might make uh, its riches all the more clearer to us. And we pray in Jesus' name. Uh, Amen. Well, it's great to be uh, with you guys uh, again. Uh, when, when I spoke at the 2012 camp, um, I spoke on the doctrine of the church. And it was great not only for me to uh, have the opportunity to think and speak about that, but for others too. And certainly it was terrific for why. Because until then, he'd been a little bit confused as to the meaning of all the references in the Bible to building up the body. So, this, because this is what he looked like in Perth, but uh, having sorted him out, you know, he, he slimmed down. So, I hope that looking at the resurrection is also helpful for you, uh, if to no one else, but why? Because he confessed to me recently that he is indeed very confused about the resurrection, uh, having found much uh, encouragement in this news recently from Tokyo that one of the ways that you can live on, so to speak, is by having old photographs turned into 3D figures. And of course this had Y thinking that perhaps uh, this was the resurrection promised him. Or even perhaps Y had been toying with the idea of having his body frozen, or uh, cryopreservation as they call it, as if it offered some hope. I mean, on the one hand, it's good to have a bit of fun with some of those ideas, but perhaps we shouldn't laugh too much because for some people, those things are their hope. That photograph there came from this newspaper article about a little girl who died recently from cancer. But before she died, she fought and won a legal battle to have her body frozen because her hope is that there will one day be a cure for cancer and when there is, her body can be thawed out and awakened or whatever and the cure applied to her cancer. And I don't know if you can read the third paragraph, but there the little girl is reported to have said, I don't want to die, but I know I'm going to. I want to live longer. I want to have this chance. Which I guess just goes to show that nobody wants to die. Everybody wants to live longer. For many Christians, 1 Corinthians chapter 15 would be one of the most hope-inspiring sections of the Bible because it speaks not only of the certainty of our own bodily resurrection, but it speaks of something much bigger than that. It speaks of a restoration of the whole of creation. 
So I want you to come with me now into 1 Corinthians chapter 15 as we think about the resurrection of Jesus and the restoration of a new creation. There's of course lots of people today who deny the bodily resurrection of Jesus. And sadly they can too often find justification for their belief in the teachings of church leaders. Church leaders like the North American bishop John Spong who uh, says that the resurrection is one of the things that first century Christians might have believed in but which sophisticated, educated, 21st century Christians know is impossible. Now, of course, there's nothing particularly new or or novel about John Spong's teaching. Ever since uh, the time of the resurrection, there have been people denying not only the resurrection of Jesus, but also the resurrection of the dead. And here, in 1 Corinthians 15, Paul seeks to correct and protect his readers from those who say in particular that there is no resurrection of the dead. You can see it in his words in verse 12. Now if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? Clearly, there were some people who were saying that. So what Paul does here is refute them. And he argues not only why we may be confident that there is indeed a resurrection of the dead, but he talks also and ultimately about what that will mean. So in this talk, I want to draw your attention to three points that he makes in this section before considering a few implications. Now his first point is that the resurrection of the dead is guaranteed by the resurrection of Jesus. The resurrection of the dead is guaranteed by the resurrection of Jesus. Now in the early verses or in the middle verses of the section that Y read, you can see at several points that Paul considers the resurrection of Jesus and the resurrection of the dead to be inseparable. So you can see it in the verse that I just read, verse 12. If Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say there's no resurrection of the dead? You see, they're inseparably connected. Or in verse 13, if there is no resurrection of dead, then not even Christ has been raised. Or thirdly, at the end of verse 15, we have testified about God that he raised Christ whom he didn't raise if it was true that the dead are not raised. And fourthly in verse 16, if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. You see, four times there, Paul says you can't have one without the other. If the dead are not raised, then Christ has not been raised. If Christ has not been raised, the dead are not raised. You see, the two are inseparable. And then with one of those lovely corrective buts that we often hear in Scripture, he reminds the people of the facts when he says in verse 20, but, but in fact Christ has been raised from the dead. 
And this is a fact of history about which his readers are already convinced, surprisingly enough. And we know that because of what Paul said in the opening few verses. After he reminded them in verses 3 and 4 that I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures. He then concludes at the end of verse 11 saying, whether then it was I or they, so we preach and so you believe. These guys are already convinced that Jesus was raised from the dead. And Paul's point here is that the resurrection of Jesus and the resurrection of the dead are inseparable. Jesus really was raised and so the dead really will be raised. The resurrection of the dead is guaranteed by the resurrection of Jesus. Now to help the people get their, get their heads around this uh, connection, Paul uses a harvest-related metaphor to uh, explain it. He wrote in verse 20 of Jesus being raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. The first fruits of the harvest is the first sign that the whole harvest is soon to follow. Um, in Australia, there's for some reason a great anticipation every year of the cherry season. And uh, in Sydney, when I used to live there, there, there's a tradition of someone paying an absolute fortune, like literally thirty or forty thousand dollars, for the first box of cherries for the season, with with the proceeds of the sale going to a charity. And because it's such a huge amount of money and a you know a good story, it's it's almost always uh, the last story on the evening news that day. Now, I love cherries. They'd have to be among my, you know, favourite fruits. So when I see on the news that somebody has paid $40,000 for the first box of cherries, I don't think, isn't that great for the charity that money's going to? I'm too selfish for that. I rejoice because it's proof to me that the supermarkets are soon going to be full of one of my favourite fruits because that box of cherries is a guarantee that the whole harvest is about to follow. And here in verse 20, it uses this idea of first fruits to describe the connection of the resurrection of Jesus to the resurrection of the dead. His resurrection is the proof and guarantee of a much bigger resurrection of the dead yet to come. Now, of course, there are those who like to understand things a little more theologically than agriculturally. And so in the next verse, Paul makes the same point, but this time he talks about the first man, Adam, and the last man, Jesus. So have a look at verses uh, 21 and 22. For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. You see, just as sin and death 
spread from Adam to all people, so being made alive from the dead will spread from Jesus to all people. The resurrection of Jesus and the resurrection of the dead are inseparable. The one of Jesus guarantees the other. This is really, I guess, the same point that we saw in the last talk in Acts chapter 2. There, the point was that the resurrection age has begun because Jesus has been raised as Lord and Christ. Similarly here, the resurrection of the dead is guaranteed by the resurrection of Jesus. I remember about 20 years ago, um, sitting in a cafe, having a coffee and watching a guy walk along the uh, footpath, uh, speaking into a mobile phone and the sort of the, you know, the guts of the phone, as we'd say in Australia, was as big and as heavy as a house brick that he had to carry with his other hand while he, you know, very sort of proudly and chauffeurly marched down the street speaking into his uh, mobile phone. And um, I realise now that I didn't just see a guy with one of the first mobile phones. I saw the first fruits of a new age of social interaction. The resurrection of Jesus is the first fruits of the resurrection of the dead. And we may be sure that the resurrection of the dead is guaranteed by the resurrection of Jesus. Now the second point to note here that uh, Paul makes is that the dead are, uh, are raised sorry, the second point to note in Paul's argument that the dead are raised is that the resurrection of the dead will mark the complete victory of God's kingdom. The resurrection of the dead will mark the complete victory of God's king and kingdom. Now if you go back to 1 Corinthians 15 and look at verses 23 and 24, we have another short sequence of events climaxing with the complete and unopposed rule of God's kingdom. Uh, Verse 23. Uh, Each in its own order. Christ the first fruits, then at his coming those who belong to Christ, then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and power. Verse 24 speaks of the the coming of the end, which means the end of this age and uh, its earthly kingdoms. And it's the end of those things because by then, every other rule, authority or power will have been destroyed. And if every one of those things has been destroyed, it means that God's kingdom will reign supreme and unopposed and therefore in all its fullness for all eternity. But this full reign and rule of God's kingdom, it only comes at the end of the sequence. The resurrection of Jesus as the first fruits, then at his second coming the resurrection of his people, then the end of any uh, threat to rival to God's kingdom, or as I'm calling it, the complete victory 
of God's king and kingdom. Now one of the things that we might find intriguing here is this delay between the resurrection of Jesus and the complete victory of God's kingdom. The passages that we've looked at in in both Matthew and Acts have uh, proclaimed the resurrection of Jesus as the coming of God's king, Christ the Lord. You might expect, therefore, that his complete victory would would have happened then when he came, that the unopposed reign of his kingdom might have begun then. But what we have instead is this delay while God puts all of his enemies under his feet. As verse 25 says, he that is uh, Jesus must reign until God has put all his enemies under Jesus' feet. Once again, this is a quotation from the Psalms, this time from Psalm 8. And it helps us to understand why we see and experience so much opposition to God, to Jesus and to the things of their kingdom. It's because the victory of the death and resurrection of Jesus is still being imposed upon God's enemies and ours. Certainly it was the death and resurrection of Jesus that disarmed and all of God's uh, enemies and is the basis for his victory over them. Yet they were not, at the time of Jesus' death and resurrection, fully destroyed and removed. It's similar, I think, to the way in which peace came after the Allied victory at the end of World War One. In Australia, we celebrate... Armistice Day um, every year by having one minute silence at 11am on the 11th day of the 11th month, November. And it's a moment of remembrance that has its origins in the formal declaration of peace to end World War One at 11am on the 11th of November. But the fuller picture about that negotiation of peace is that Germany acknowledged its defeat when it came seeking terms of a ceasefire on November the 8th. But although Germany was acknowledging its defeat, the ceasefire didn't actually come until three days later, 11am on November the 11th. Verse 25 is telling us a bit like that with the victory of Jesus. There's a delay between the effective defeat of our enemies and his complete and final removal of them. Now verse 26 here tells us that the last enemy to be destroyed is death. And again, I think it helps us to understand why the end does not come until the resurrection of the dead. It is indeed the death of Jesus that defeats death because the penalty for sin no longer has the power over us. 
But it's not until we are raised to lives that cannot die that death itself is destroyed. And these verses are telling us that this resurrection to deathless life will happen at the second coming of Jesus. Have a look again at verse 23. There's this order, Christ the firstfruits, then at his coming those who belong to Christ, then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom of God to the Father after destroying all of our enemies. So you see, it's the resurrection of the dead that will mark the complete victory of God's king and kingdom. But not only will the resurrection of the dead mark this complete victory, but the resurrection of dead will see the restoration of God's plan for creation. Resurrection of the dead will see the restoration of God's plan for the whole of creation. We might even call it a new creation. This is the point of the the verses that I think sound a little bit confusing when you hear them read. The verses that are talking about, uh, you know, who's subject to who and who else is excluded from that subjection. Um, We've already seen that those verses are speaking of God fulfilling Psalm 8. And 1 Corinthians 15 verse 27 is a direct quote from Psalm 8 which says, For God has put all things in subjection under his feet. It speaks of the complete victory of the King Jesus coming when God has put all things in subjection under his feet. But of course, God doesn't make himself subject to Jesus. The point verse 27 makes uh, when it goes on to say, but when it says all things are put in subjection, it's plain that he is accepted who put all things in subjection under him. You know, it's saying God puts everything in subjection under Jesus except, of course, himself. So Jesus remains under the authority of God. The final description then we get is, of all things in creation, under the authority of Jesus, who is in turn under the authority of God. So if you were to draw it, it would look like that. Maybe you've seen that diagram. You can see how that uh, diagram, that drawing, matches the wording of verse 28, which says, when all things are subjected to Christ, then the Son himself will also be subjected to him who put all things in subjection under him, that God may be all in all. Christ under the authority of God, but in authority over everything else. Now, I'm not sure you know how familiar you are with the account of creation in Genesis 1 and 2, but... If we think about what is actually said in Genesis 1 and 2 about creation, we can see that here in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, Paul is describing a restoration of creation. Uh, Hear the words from uh, Genesis chapter 1 verse 28 as I read them for you. God blessed Adam and God said to them, the man and the woman, 
Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea, the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. You see, God is giving this instruction to humanity. He's commanding them. So humanity is under God's authority. But he's giving them dominion over everything else. So everything else is under humanity's authority. Again, if we were to draw it, it would look like that one. But then Genesis chapter 3 tells us that God's intention for creation was destroyed when humanity disregarded, disobeyed God and ate the forbidden fruit. And that action, that rebellion, that sin was a rejection of God's rule over them. And that's a situation that uh, we're still seeing today because the sin of Adam has spread to all humanity and people are still living as though they rule themselves and the world without regard for God. But with the resurrection of the dead and the complete victory of God's king and God's kingdom, God's intention for creation is restored. The resurrection of the dead will see the restoration of God's plan for creation. Now you might say, okay, I can see that verse 28 describes Jesus living God's intention for creation. But where do we fit in? We need to remember that the New Testament speaks of us being connected to Jesus as, you know, we're his body, he's our head. We're his bride, he is our husband. They're images that, 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 that indicate that, you know, us and Jesus are like that. And that we share the reign with him in this restored creation. And in fact, if you can remember as far back as last night and some of the stuff that I said about uh, Daniel. Daniel chapter 7 verse 18 spoke of the kingdom being shared with God's people when it said, the saints of the Most High shall receive the kingdom and possess it forever. And this is what we have in the new creation of 1 Corinthians chapter 15. The people of God sharing with their Lord Jesus under the authority of God while having authority over everything else in creation. Again, I guess technically these verses are describing God's restoration of humanity's place in creation. But if you think outside the box of 1 Corinthians 15 for a moment, you see that the resurrection of Jesus and the resurrection of dead brings the restoration of all the rest of creation too. So uh, hear these words from Romans chapter 8, uh, verse 18 to 23. 
going to have to fix that now. Romans chapter 8, 18 to 23. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subject to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope, that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. How do I get that to go back to the slide before? Since Adam's sin, the whole world has been subjected to the futility of corruption, that is, decay. You know, every living thing gets old, gets weak, dies. But Romans 8 speaks metaphorically of creation groaning with the aches and pains of decay, you know, just like we do when we whinge about arthritis and our sore hip and all that sort of stuff. But not only is it groaning in frustration at those things, it's groaning in eager anticipation, looking forward to the time when it will decay no more. As uh, verse 20 says, we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth, you know, waiting for its new life to begin. Or in terms of uh, verse 21, um, looking, looking forward to the time when creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. When is this going to happen? Verse 23 at the very end says that it will happen at the redemption of our bodies or in the language we've been using, the resurrection of our bodies. So if we bring our minds back to 1 Corinthians chapter 15, Paul is here speaking of the fact that the resurrection of the dead will see the resurrection not only of God's plan for humanity, but the resurrection of the dead will see the restoration of the whole of creation. Now what are some implications of this? One is that this whole chapter stresses the importance of knowing that the resurrection of Jesus actually happened. You know, if the resurrection of creation, if the restoration of creation is guaranteed by the resurrection of the dead, which in turn is guaranteed by the resurrection of Jesus, then if you take the resurrection of Jesus away, everything collapses. 
Indeed, you can see why Paul says that if Jesus wasn't raised from the dead, all Christian hope disappears. Or in, uh, in, in his words, in verse 17, if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you're still in your sins. Those who've fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we of all people are most to be pitied. So it's very important to know why it is that Christians are convinced that on a day in history, Jesus really did rise from the dead. I don't know if the workshop Wise talking about is going to touch on that sort of thing, but if it is, do it. Or if you can't, uh, get hold of John Dixon's workbook for the course called Simply Christianity and read the extra information section on the arguments for the resurrection. Because if everything we're hoping for is guaranteed ultimately by the resurrection of Jesus, we need to be convinced that it actually happened. The second implication is that the achievements of Jesus stand. The achievements of Jesus stand. And in particular, and in terms of what uh, Paul says is at stake in verse 17 and 18, it means that we are no longer in our sins. Our sins have been forgiven and we are sure of being accepted by God. Uh, Tim Keller, great American preacher, perhaps if you've heard of him, Tim Keller says the resurrection of Jesus is, is, is like a receipt that you get when you buy something in a store. You've purchased an item, you've got the receipt in the bag, but walking out the store, security stops you. But you're rightly confident because the receipt for your purchase proves that they have no claim over you. And Keller says the resurrection's the same. On judgment day, when the judge's security stops you, you can be confident that he has no claim on you because Jesus rose from the death by which your sins were forgiven. And not only that, the Christians who have already died have not and will not perish. In the words of this verse, verse 18, it's as though they are asleep, awaiting their awakening with ours in the resurrection of the dead to come. Now this for me is probably the most significant point of assurance in anything to do with the resurrection or even the Christian faith perhaps. You see, I have four kids whom I love and in whom I delight. And I sometimes think about people who've lost a child. I'm sorry if my mention of that is upsetting for anybody here. But I sometimes think of people who have lost a child and I wonder how impossibly unbearable could that be. Is there anything that could even go close to giving them hope at that time or even in time since? 
For me, that hope is found in the resurrection of the dead that is guaranteed by the resurrection of Jesus. Because I imagine that although the death of a child would still be incredibly difficult, I think I could live on with the knowledge that my child's death was not the end. That I will be with them again because we believe in a God who raises the dead and has begun to do so in Jesus. The final implication, which I don't know what happened to it, but there it is. All of this means, of course, that the hopeful life of Christians is by no means pitiful. Paul said in verse 19, If in Christ we have this hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. But if the resurrection of the dead is guaranteed by the resurrection of Jesus and the whole of creation is to be restored, then the hopeful life of Christians is by no means pitiful. Indeed, it's truly purposeful as we seek to bring to others the hope that we have in Jesus. I'll have more to say on that in the talks to come. But for now, let's just finish by letting God have the last word as he does at the end of the chapter from verse 53 for this perishable body must put on the imperishable this mortal body must put on immortality when the perishable puts on the imperishable and the mortal puts on immortality then shall come to pass the saying it is that is written death is swallowed up in victory O death where is your victory O death where is your sting the sting of death is sin And the power of sin is the law, but thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my beloved brothers and sisters, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labour is not in vain, because the resurrection of Jesus guarantees the resurrection of the dead, which in turn guarantees the restoration of God's intention for us and for all of creation. Amen. Thanks for listening to this podcast brought to you by Bethany Trinity Presbyterian Church. For more information, visit us online at bcpc.sg.